On November 5th, 2011, at 6 p.m., Derek Brodus, a freshman at the University of Tennessee, was sitting on his couch in his frat house waiting for the college football game for the volunteers, University of Tennessee, to begin. He fumbled for his cell phone when he heard it ringing, and on the other end he heard this really gruff voice saying, Get ready. Get dressed. Hope you're not drunk. There's a police escort coming to your house to pick you up in about two minutes. Brodus was panicking. What is going on? Well, this is the backstory. The starting kicker for the University of Tennessee college football team had been injured earlier that week. He was out. The backup field goal kicker strained his hamstring during warm-ups, so he was out. Derek Brodus, who had tried out for the team but got cut, was now their third and only option. So head coach Dooley told the campus police, you got to put an APB out on Brodus. you got to get him here, give him a breathalyzer, make sure he's not drunk, go to his frat house, pick him up, and bring him here. So Brodus, at about 6.10, was whisked into the training room. The trainer stretched him out. They slapped a jersey on him that didn't even have his name on it because he wasn't on the team. Brodus wound up playing the game. He kicked three extra points, three for three, and he kicked a 21-yard field goal. Coach Dooley gave him the game ball. Now, I love this story because this is like a plot line that happens so often in the Bible. Not football necessarily, but the plot line of God's got a mission, God's got something that needs to get done, a very important job, and God pretty much seems to say, hey, how about you, you over there, how about you, the equivalent of some frat boy sitting on the couch, I got a job for you. It's the plot line of a lot of big-name people in the Bible. Now, we know their big names, and we know how great they are spiritually and in their leadership because we know the whole story. But when these people were chosen and in the process of developing them, they were pretty rough characters. Abraham and Sarah, David, Peter, Mary, the Apostle Paul. Actually, we could summarize this plot line in one sentence. Here it is. God calls unlikely people to an impossible mission with his staggering promise. Impossible, unlikely people, impossible mission, staggering promise. So in this morning's reading, we see one of those unlikely people called to do something impossible with God's staggering promise, a man named Moses. And before we get into the story, I just want to say... This plot line and those three plot movements, that is just simply normal Christian living. This isn't for some kind of elite Christian group or some kind of special Christians or advanced Christians or really spiritually mature Christians or full-time clergy kind of Christians. These three things are the unlikely person, the impossible mission, the staggering promise are for all of us this morning. So, turn with me to your bulletin. I want to look at Moses' story. You'll notice that's on page 8, and then on page 11 I have this, like, outline thing that you can follow along with as well. 
Just a little backup to get some of the context of this story. So, in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God pretty much lays out a really concise summary statement of his mission to a man when he calls a man named Abraham. And he says, I will bless you and your family in order that through you I may bless all the families and all the nations of the earth. So that is God's mission. Bless you and then you will bless all the nations of the earth. It's an incredible mission. It's broad. It's way bigger than me and my personal relationship with God. It's way bigger than us as a church. God wants to bless all the nations of the earth. Well, as we fast forward a few hundred years to the book of Exodus, now that mission is in trouble. It's in jeopardy. Because the children of Israel, the ones who are carrying that promise, bearing that mission, fulfilling that mission, now they're trapped and they're enslaved in Egypt. And Egypt is this incredible superpower, as you know, led by these series of pharaohs. It's really a thriving economy of technology and art and religion. It's, It's a superpower in every way. But there's one problem with this superpower, especially for the children of Israel. The economy thrives off the backbreaking labor of thousands upon thousands of Hebrew slaves. And just to make sure they don't get too much power, every time a baby Hebrew boy is born, the Egyptians try to come in, find that baby boy, and dispose of it by throwing it into the river. So this is an evil, evil situation. Something's got to be done. What is God going to do? Well, you notice in verse, chapter 3, verses 8, or 7 and 8, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. There, there's passion in God's voice here. I've seen this. I have heard the cry of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them. I don't know if you caught that. I have seen, God says. I have heard. And I am going to come down. And I am going to do something. I'm going to clean up this mess. I'm going to right this wrong. I'm going to redeem my people. I'm going to release them so they can bless all the nations of the earth. God doesn't like it when babies get disposed of by being thrown into the river. God doesn't like it when human beings made in His image are enslaved and terrorized and impressed, oppressed. And so God says, I'm going to come down. So what's He going to do? What's His big strategy? Verse 10. Taps Moses and he says, I will send you, Moses. Hey, you. Now, at this point in his life, Moses is really an unlikely candidate. He is like a frat boy sitting on a couch waiting for the game to start. He's not looking for a mission. Earlier in his life, he was one of those Hebrew boys that should have been thrown into the river. Miraculously, he was saved. He was adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh. Then as a young man, he tried to get involved in mission. He tried to do something. He saw an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses, in a fit of anger, intervened, struck the Egyptian taskmaster, and killed him. Probably manslaughter, probably not murder, Probably didn't intend to do it. But Moses is now, after that, he flees. He just leaves. Leaves town. 
runs away, goes off into the desert. He finds a nice girl from Midian. He marries her. He's really got a nice family. He likes his father-in-law, Jethro. They seem to get along very well. He partakes in Jethro's shepherding business. He's kind of an assistant shepherd. Spiritually, he's off the grid. He's not searching for God. He's not looking to change the world or make a difference. He just wants to lay low, not ruin his life again, and just live his life. He is what I would call not God's type of person or leader. Not God's type. I love that phrase. As a a contemporary example of somebody that's not God's type, I've been reading a memoir of an English professor named Dr. Holly Ordway, who for most of her academic career was a committed atheist. She said, and in her memoir, she said, faith of any kind was alien to me and had been alien to me since as far back as I could recall. I had never in my life said a prayer, never been to a church service. And here's how she, this is the analogy she described of what it felt like and thought like to her when somebody said, well, if you trust in Jesus, your life will be so much better. You'll have abundant life. You'll have eternal life. She said it was like this. She said it was like somebody saying, well, there's a pink unicorn in the sky, and if you believe in that pink unicorn, that pink unicorn will give you the keys to a new BMW, and your life will be so much better. She said, it sounds really great, but I just know there's not a pink unicorn there. So... Faith of any kind just is totally irrational, and it just makes no sense. And she said this. She said this great line in her memoir. She said, how easy it would have been to write me off. A lost cause, a waste of time, an enemy of Christ. And then she wrote a book, and I love the title. Her memoir is Not God's Type. That's her memoir. You know, I just think so many of us think, for one reason or another, I'm not God's type. I am not the kind of person God is looking for. I have problems that disqualify me. God, if you understood my past, you would know why I think I'm not God's type. If you understood my family situation... If you understand what family I came out of, it wasn't exactly a good family. You understand the family I live in now, I am not God's type. So many reasons. I'm not God's type. Maybe you feel like you have a special set of temptations or sins that you struggle with that, that puts you in some kind of special category of sinners. And God can't quite redeem you. So you're not God's type. Maybe you think, you come to Rez on Sunday morning and you think, I like football more than Mozart, you know? Maybe I'm not God's type. It could be a hundred reasons why we think. Maybe you think, you know, I'm a salesman, I'm a saleswoman. I make money. I know how to make money. I like making money. I'm really good at making money. Does that make me not God's type? It could be a hundred reasons why we feel that way. Well, notice what God does with Moses. He kind of plays a trick on him. So he's got this bush. God has this bush that's burning. It's on fire. But it's not burning up. So what God does is he draws Moses in to mission. 
Not by clubbing them over the head and going, Moses, don't you care? Don't you see all the needs in the world? Don't you see what I see? Don't you hear what I hear? Don't you, don't you know how much people are suffering? Don't you feel bad? Instead, he says, he creates this, this sight that is filled with beauty and wonder. And Moses looks at it and he goes, i got to see this. This is amazing. You see what God is doing? He's drawing him in. Not by some kind of moralistic harangue, but with beauty and with wonder. It is sheer grace. God chooses Moses and then draws him in on, sheer, on the basis of grace. Moses doesn't deserve it. <clears throat> Moses isn't looking for it. You and I, unlikely people, are called by God's grace. <clears throat> saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Really, there aren't two kinds of people. There aren't like God's type and then not God's type. Well, really, the only two kinds of people are those who know they need mercy and those who don't think they need mercy. Those are the two kinds of people in the Bible. So these unlikely people, <clears throat> called by grace, <clears throat> drawn in by grace. Here's the second part. It's not quite as comforting. This unlikely people, this unlikely person, Moses, and unlikely people, us, are given an impossible mission. Or at least very difficult. Humanly impossible. Now this, again, this happens a lot in the Bible. God calls some unlikely person and then gives them some impossible job to do. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> I can't recall a single story in the Bible when God taps somebody on the shoulder and says, got a little tiny job for you? <clears throat> Just going to take a couple minutes? No danger, no inconvenience, no risk, money back guarantee. If you order before midnight, I'll give you two easy missions for the price of one. But please, just take my mission. That never happens in the Bible. As a matter of fact, God is serious about getting his people to the point where they will lay down their lives for the sake of his mission. You know, I've heard plenty of sermons where preachers make fun of Moses, and I've been one of them. You know, the guy, he kind of sounds like a whiner. Verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel, Israel out of Egypt? Verse 13, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Chapter 4, verse 10. That, that was actually chapter 4, verse 10. You know, he sounds like a whiner, but again, think about the mission that God gave him. Here's the mission. The mission is, first, I need you to rally about a million demoralized Hebrew slaves. Even though you've fled the country and you've just recently come back. And then I need you to waltz into the presence of Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world. And I need you to go into his presence and say, Pharaoh, you need to let these people go. I know I don't have any titles or education or anything. I know that I don't have any army or anything, but... God is really serious. He means it. You need to let these people go. A pharaoh is either going to laugh or he's going to chop his head off. Or probably both. In that order. So no wonder Moses says, would you find somebody else? Could you, God, please find somebody else for this? I just don't want to do this. Not only do I feel qualified, I don't want to do it. 
So let's pause. So far we got unlikely person, impossible mission. Unlikely person, impossible mission. So far this is not looking very good. The odds are not very good. Fortunately, there's something else in this story. A staggering promise from God. Notice chapter 3, verse 12. The Lord says, after Moses starts to excuse himself and get out of it and complain, say why you can't do it, God says, but I will be with you. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, again, God says something very similar. Now therefore go, Moses, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now notice what God does not say in this promise. God does not say, I will be with you and it's going to be really easy. I will be with you and it won't cost you much. I will be with you and you will never feel like you're walking in the dark and you're making absolutely no progress and you're going backwards and your heart is breaking because of the fallen, evil world that we live in. That will never, that will not happen. God does not say, you will not, you could possibly lose your life for serving me. Or your children could lose their life for being sent out in mission for me. God does not say that. He simply says it's a very limited offer. I will be with you. Five words. But that promise is enough. I will be with you. That is all you need. Now, this came home to me in a dramatic way this past week. As some of you know, I traveled to Jos, Nigeria to symbolically represent this, all of you who gave so generously to our Good Friday offering. As you recall, as you may recall, or if you're new here, every year we have a Good Friday gift that we give and to the nations of the earth. And this year we gave it to Joss, Nigeria. And uh, we gave it to two things, to help what's called Zimbiri House, which is a home for children who used to be orphans, who have now been adopted by Archbishop Kwashi and his wife Gloria, and also to help the Christian Institute, which trains pastors and church planters and rural health care workers, many of whom will go back into the northeast territories of Nigeria, where there's been persecution, where Boko Haram has been raising churches, persecuting Christians, killing moderate Muslims and Christians, and wreaking havoc and kidnapping girls. And many of those young men and women are being trained so that they will go back into those territories to bring the gospel, to bring the light of Christ. And so we gave our Good Friday offering to that. And it was such a substantial offering that Ann Kessler said, I think somebody should go and deliver this. And Nigeria said, yes, somebody should come and deliver this. So for some reason, I went. And while I was there, it's, I got to Joss, and my, son, my 22-year-old son had had knee surgery a couple weeks before, and everything was going pretty well. So when I got to Joss, I texted him, because he had a follow-up appointment. I said, Wes, how did the appointment go? He said, not good, Dad, I'm in the hospital. He said, my knee got infected. Well, as that infection began to unfold, I... I couldn't get information, but I talked to one doctor who said it was a really, really serious infection. As, and then it had already gotten into the joint and into the bone, and 
Well, that wasn't quite true, but it was still a really bad infection, and I couldn't get information, and I was just heartsick, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to figure out if I should come home. And at 1.30 in the morning, I got up. I couldn't sleep, <clears throat> and I was pacing and worrying and trying to pray. By the way, my son Wes is fine now, so I can move on with the rest of this illustration now. Okay, so uh, he is doing well. But at 1.30 I was praying and pacing, and I didn't know what to do. And it was one of those moments where in the midst of my anxiety, in the midst of that incredible heaviness and confusion and heart sickness, the Lord spoke so utterly, clearly, and directly to me. And he said, I am with you. I sent you here, and I'm going to be with you. And I am with your son. And then here's the part of the message that just was like, Ugh. I needed to get you out of the way so your son would know that I am with him. I will take care of him. This is not your battle to fight. That is the staggering promise. <clears throat> now you might think, well, that's really dramatic. You were in just Nigeria. But that is a promise for every Christian who's on mission. Every time you step out on mission, you know, right after the resurrection, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. There's that mission, go into all the nations, go preach the gospel, go share the good news with others. And then Jesus gave this promise, I will be with you to the end of the age. So call the mission and the promise. That is for every believer. God is no respecter of mission quests. One is not higher and lower. God just looks, you're on mission, I will be with you. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. When it comes to joining God on mission. What is one impossible or at least difficult or painful thing that comes to your mind? One thing that makes you say, nah, that would never happen. That person, he, she, would never come to know Christ. Me, I could never do that. That injustice would never be set right. That huge social issue, orphans, abortion, refugees, it's never going to get better. We'll never make a dent. Violence, oppression. Those people in those countries with that kind of background they'll never be reached for Christ. What is the difficult thing that God has laid on your heart? Now, if you're, by your own admission, you're not a Christian this morning, let me just say, just for a minute, just say, I think, based on my own life experience, based on the Bible, I think that you were wired for a mission like that. You were wired to connect like something like that. 
And when you become a Christian, which by the way is by sheer grace, you don't work your way to be a good Christian. You receive it as a free gift from the Lord Jesus Christ, who has already paid the price for your sins, who has won the victory for you. You receive it as a gift. You don't earn it. And you receive all those gifts and those benefits of salvation. And one of the gifts that you receive is that you get to be sent out on mission. The thing that your heart really longs for, that you were made for, that you were designed for. So when you get connected to Christ, you get sent by Him on the mission, and then you get His promise, I'm with you always. And if you do know Christ, let me urge you, brothers and sisters, let me just say, don't lock yourself into a box, into a corner like Moses, and say, I'm just not that kind of Christian. I'm not a like on kind of mission kind of Christian. I'm a I'm a like a I'm a worship kind of Christian. You know, I just I love to worship. I'm a Bible teaching kind of Christian. I love getting Bible teaching. What do you what do you do with all that Bible teaching? I just I love Bible teaching. Just love getting it. Don't lock yourself into a corner like Moses and say that I'm not that kind of Christian. I could never do that. I mean, I know some people share their faith in Jesus with people that don't know Christ, but I'm not, I'm not that kind of Christian. You know, Moses also said, I'm just not really an on-mission kind of guy, God. It didn't fly very well with God, as we see in this story. It didn't go over very, very big. So, let me challenge you this morning. Do something for God that seems impossible. And I'm not talking about something like dramatic, amazing, life-changing. Let me, let me put it this way. Do something small, out of love, for people that don't know Christ that you think is impossible. Do something small out of love for those who don't know Christ. Share the gospel with somebody that you think will reject it, that you've convinced yourself. Get involved in a ministry to people, a group of people that you think is beyond hope, beyond healing, beyond help. Start small. Start where God has placed you, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family. Those are all the places that God has allowed you to be on mission. Nobody else can be on mission there. That's why you are put there. But start somewhere. Tell God, Lord, I don't want to be a not on mission kind of Christian. I want to be an on mission kind of Christian. Start there. And the Lord said, you take one step in that direction and I will be with you. Amen.